Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 126 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday afternoon, June 26th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Hi. Hi, Steve. How's your summer going? Ugh. I, 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 I owe so many things to so many. Never have so few people owed so many things to so many other people. <laughs> nice. Um, what, what is uh, on your docket currently that's really eating up your time? Besides all the prep we do for these episodes. Well, there is the, the prep we do for these episodes. Um, you know, I have been, um, Karen's in Boston and Sydney has her sixth ear infection. So um, I, but what's really been my, my time the last couple of days is, is childcare. Yeah. Um, well, which, you know, is. You is, got your priorities in order. Good uh, for I, you. you know, I'm, I, I, that's not a complaint. It's just the way life is. No, I'm sorry to hear about ear infections. That, especially the extent to which that impacts sleeping. Oh, yeah. No fun. No, the, the tubes are coming. Yeah, bring, bring on the tubes. We've been down that road, my friend. So, um, you know, our as you know, I'm co-author of Aspen Publishers' National Security Law Counterterrorism Law Casebooks. We are doing both our annual supplement and a new edition, um, and I am so woefully behind on my contributions to both of those that you, you my co-authors may dump me. Your co-authors can hear you saying that. Uh, Wait, is that a plea? Are you trying to engineer uh, your own removal from the uh, casebook? No, no, no. I think I think my co-authors are well aware of how far behind I am. Fair point. Um, I just this is my way of saying. Um, you know, I feel real guilt about that. You're, it's nice of you to express your guilt. Ooh, uh, and I'm uh, getting a phone call. Uh, um, I'm, I, for the that's first your co-author's telling you to get off the podcast and get back to work editing. What are what are some of the major areas that are going to be in the supplement? So, I mean, you know, we the, we've got stuff on the the border emergency and the wall, right? Which you know is technically a national security topic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some developments, of course, in the military commissions, right? We've got some of the Iran Mishigas. We have um, the steel tariffs. We've got a whole bunch of cases. I mean, you know, one need only listen to the last 52 weeks of this podcast to hear about the many, many judicial developments in our field. Indeed. Oh, by the way, speaking of uh, national security related casebooks and stuff, I saw that the great foreign relations law casebook that is Jack Goldsmith and Kurt Bradley is adding Ashley Deeks. Woohoo! Friend of the show, Ashley Deeks. So awesome uh, development. Hey, Ashley, do you want to come on to another casebook? <laughs> You're re- using the podcast to recruit for uh, hey, this is like a Tom Sawyer paint the fence deal, basically. <laughs> yeah, do, it's do, so do you want to write a chapter in our case really, book? You, you know, I have long resisted involvement. I do in this kind of enterprise. Yeah, proving yet again how much smarter you are than I am. Anyway, I don't know about that, um, but. in our in our uh, double jeopardy case, uh, the government's brief is due on Friday, so I'll have a reply brief to write. So you know. Good times to be had by all. Nice. All right. Well, um, we've got good things to talk about on this show. Let me give you a quick run of show, listeners. Um, We are going to first discuss the D.C. Circuit decision in Qasim, Q-A-S-S-I-M, Qasim. Uh, this concerns military detention and whether and to what extent detainees who are non-citizens held at Gitmo under color of the law of armed conflict can invoke constitutional rights other than the protections of the suspension clause, which, of course, Boumediene settled. So that'll relate to the Kiemba case. Or at least mostly case. settled. Well, right, yeah. Um, next, we'll turn our attention to Iran, where we nearly, maybe— had a kinetic use of force. And then instead, we have learned through a series of news reports uh, that there may have instead been a series of uh, cyber operations. And so we'll sort of talk about under the general heading of separated powers relating to foreign affairs and in force. We'll talk about war powers issues here, gray zone power issues, and kind of relate all those things together. Um, Then we'll check in with something that came up, I think, right as we started recording last week with the succession at the Pentagon, we'll, we'll check in with succession in office themes, which has become a recurring part of the show. 
specifically for DOD. I don't think, Steve, I don't think our sustaining member military commissions showed up this week for us. No, although although um, I will just say I think that won't last. Fair enough. That, that, I, that, I, I think that's that quietude sa- will not last. No, I'm quite confident in your prediction there. Quietude. Quite, you like that? Yeah. Um, Wait, it's my word. Yes, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I tried to appropriate that. Um, anyways, we'll also have a National Security Division roundup. There have been some interesting recent uh, terrorism-related case developments. And uh, as long as we're at it and have a bit of a light show, we're going to check in uh, on the Supreme Court because this week is opinion palooza as they try to get off to their summer vacations and uh, various destinations by issuing all their long-awaited opinions. So we'll see what's going on there, even if it's not quite national security related. Well, it is, it is in the sense that, the, that multiple justices are pretending the demise of the entire administrative state. So, you know. The National Security uh, Universe is part of that. I don't know if it's quite so okay, dramatic. Okay, wait a second. Well, we're there, there is a footnote. The there show. is a footnote in an opinion today that four justices joined, suggesting that the power of administrative agencies to promulgate regulations that bind private parties itself raises serious constitutional questions. That's a very exciting administrative law and con law topic for I sure. Mean, if you believe in nihilism, <laughs> tell us how you really feel. I hate everything. I know you do. It's part of the fun. Episode I, title. I, you know, I, I would have said I would have said before we started doing this show 125, I guess, episodes ago, that uh, on the optimism-pessimism scale, I'd, I would have pegged you for a fairly optimistic person. But I'm beginning to think you're maybe either turning pessimistic or have been more pessimistic than I thought the whole no, time. No, no, no. I am. I am. I would. I would freely admit, hopefully accurately. Um, that I think of myself as a generally optimistic person, I'm just feeling very beat up and weary right now. So I'm in a I'm in a pessimistic moment. We need uh, some kind of tracker on the podcast homepage. It's like sort of Steve's, <laughs> Steve's 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 energy level. Energy level. Yes. Yeah, someone build us a tracker. Low. Um, well, we will improve your your optimism by wrapping up with some cool frivolity. We've finally got the ability to talk Westworld, and so I've completed Westworld. season two. Westworld. 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 You and I can talk Westworld at the end. So uh, if you haven't finished season two, you may want to skip today's frivolity. Although if you haven't skipped season two, if you haven't finished season two and you're worried about spoilers, what are you waiting for? Hey, it took me a while to get to it. The fortune of having some flights where I could uh, binge. Yet again, right? Don't be a Bobby. <laughs> Come on. I, I, I'm just in time delivery. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Uh, well, let's start in with uh, the D.C. Circuit decision in United States versus Kasim. Um I think a lot of the relevant background for most listeners is going to be, of course, very familiar, but I feel duty-bound to say a few words. Do it. Um, Although the, we predicted this. Yeah, yeah. The The overarching question is you've got non-citizens who are in U.S. military custody under color of the law of war as, as enemy combatants uh, being detained for the so-called duration of hostilities. Um, the question of whether being held at Gitmo in particular in those circumstances puts you in a position that you might not otherwise have been in to claim various protections of the Constitution is obviously one that's been with us for, for many, many years, yet um, the amount of case law engaging on it has been less than you'd expect. The one issue under that heading that's gone all the way to the Supreme Court and got settled, as far as it goes, is the Boumediene decision on whether the protections of the suspension clause, that is to say the constitutional limits on when courts can be deprived of habeas jurisdiction, um, or, or where habeas jurisdiction has to run according to the Constitution, um, that's been settled in favor of ensuring that there's habeas litigation at Gitmo. We've had a decade of it since then. But 
other questions, and there are a million other questions. Uh, you know, do they have First Amendment expressive rights? Do they have trial-relevant procedural rights that would impact and limit what the military commissions can do? Do they have Fifth Amendment procedural due process or even substantive due process rights that could impinge on the processes and maybe even the substantive rules for the habeas proceedings? Those questions the Supreme Court has not weighed in on. The D.C. Circuit pretty early on in the, the post-Bumedian process did have something to say about the Fifth Amendment due process question. Exactly what it said turns out to be <laughs> the, the point, one of the key points of emphasis in this new case. But that earlier case is one in which, uh, was it Judge Randolph? Yep. Yeah, Judge Randolph in the Kiemba case, which dealt with, um, r- listeners may recall, there were a group of Chinese Uyghur detainees. The United States was not interested in returning to China, nor were they wanting to go back to China. Um, but there, were, there was a lot of difficulty placing most of them, and a lot of them ended up in sort of a, we're ready to release you, but we don't have a place yet limbo for a long time. There was litigation to try to see if they could at least be basically paroled into the United States. The government resisted. Um, in the Kiamba decision... That wasn't, wait, it wasn't in parole. Hold on a second. Judge well, Urbina... She's not in sort of a lay use. No, no, but, like but, Judge, but Judge Urbina actually wanted to produce them in his courtroom as part of the habeas process, right? To actually try to figure out what the proper remedy was for well, their disposition. They certainly wanted the option of release into the United States. That's right. No, that's right. And that's, why, and that's why Urbina's order to produce them in his courtroom provoked this emergency Absolutely. craziness. So it got to the D.C. Circuit, and the circuit said, no way, no how. They, they can't. The, the substantive bottom line was... No, no bringing them into the United States. There was language in the opinion where Randolph says, um, with reference to a reference by the t- detainees to the idea that the Constitution might be relevant here, and specifically that the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause might require this sort of accessibility. He said, no way. Boumediene didn't decide that issue. It only decided uh, suspension in habeas. And rather than sort of follow the Bumedian analytic model, which is to say the functional multi-factor test that Kennedy and the majority used in Bumedian on the habeas question, he didn't do that. He just said, look, it's settled that with the exception of suspension, which Bumedian carves out, everything else is still as he says it used to be, which is to say non-citizens outside the United States have no claim on constitutional rights, period. So he accepts that as the default and brushes the issue aside. And it's a pretty brief treatment. Um, that has been cited a lot since then. Well, can I just say it's, yeah. it's worth saying there's subsequent history to that case, right? Which yeah, by all means, lay which, that out. Which, which complicates just how what just what kind of precedent it is, right? So, um, so the Uyghurs petitioned for certiorari um, to challenge Judge Randolph's opinion in Kiemba one, um, and the Supreme Court granted cert. I mean, this is actually the only Guantanamo case since Boumediene that the Supreme Court agreed at least initially to review. Um, it was only when um, it was only after the change in administration, right, and the Obama administration made, uh, quote, genuine offers of resettlement, unquote, to the Uyghurs, um, that the government then successfully persuaded the Supreme Court to um, sort of ditch the case by vacating Judge Randolph's original opinion and returning the case to the D.C. Circuit for further consideration in light of these changed factual circumstances. And on remand, there's this really, I think, unhelpfully awkward Per curiam opinion, where the pan- the same panel basically says we're largely we're, we're mostly reinstating our earlier opinion. When I think it would have been much more helpful if they'd actually just written a new opinion, right, right, um, which adds to some of the confusion because it's like, well, okay, reinstating all of it. I mean, like the Supreme Court granted cert presumably because they had some concern about the limits of the analysis in your first opinion. 
right? So then it went. Maybe, yeah. so, so then it went back up to the Supreme Court a second time, um, and the Supreme Court denied cert the second time. But there's a four justice statement respecting the denial of cert. I think Breyer wrote it. Um, basically saying the reason why we're denying cert is not because we agree with the Court of Appeals, but because we don't think this case continues to present the question on which, you know, cert was granted the first time, right? We think that the facts have changed enough that this is no longer this, like, you know, rock in a hard place situation between the detainee's right to a release and the executive branch's right to control immigration. Um, and so, you know, that, that would, to me, that was always part of the shadow of uncertainty hanging over Kiemba, which was the Supreme Court's very awkward, clear interest in, but not definitive resolution of the two appeals in that case. So I think it's completely fair to say that there were, there were indeed, as, as you described, uh, strong hints that there may be a problem with the analysis, but, but all we can really say with certainty is that four justices at any given time seemed concerned. We don't know that five ever were. Right. Um, and and the, the reinstatement of the opinion leaves it out there, at least to the point where it then becomes something that some of the, the lower court judges would then point to and say, look, um, there's nothing but suspension as far as constitutional rights goes. It, it's been treated as, it's been read pretty strongly, I guess it's fair to say. Um, and so the Kasim case more or less presented the question, you know, at least at this stage, uh, is that right? Now, the, the, the reason Kasim is arguing this is Kasim wants the benefit not just of habeas review, which he got and lost on. What, what he now wants to do is try to get the protections of the Fifth Amendment procedural due process concept, A, established in general, and then B, interpreted to include a prohibition on the fact finder uh, putting weight on evidence that was shown to cleared counsel but not to the detainee himself. Um, it's not at all clear, by the way, of course, that, that the Fifth Amendment due process clause, if applicable in the habeas setting in this circumstance, would create or yield such a rule. That's, that, That's right. it, it might or might not. That's right. um, the question really at hand in Kasim, in this opinion, was, is this an open question or is it law of the circuit that the Fifth Amendment due process clause does not apply? Certainly, the, the plain language of the original Randolph opinion has a line that gives that argument the complete back of the hand. So the first thing to say is that Judge Millett for the new panel. Millett. Millett. Is it Millett? Okay. Um, do you, I don't know anything about Judge Millett. Is there any uh, insights or interesting angles to share here? She's incredibly smart. Um, uh, she, you know, she was a longtime um, uh, appellate practitioner in D.C. I think she had some, some of that time in the government. Um, an Obama appointee, but by no means one of the more controversial ones. Okay. Um, just sort of, you know, a really, 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 really smart, good Non, you know, ideological, like super ideological judge. Okay, good. That's nice. So, what you want to hear about judges? So, the Millet opinion. Um, my read of it, Steve, is that. Let, let me preface this by saying that I think there was a good opinion to be written to distinguish or to revisit or to call into question the idea that the Randolph opinion should control here. Or, and especially that it got it right in the first instance. I think that uh, there was a real problem in the first instance not actually performing the, the analysis that uh, the Boumediene had applied. So, so I'm actually somewhat sympathetic with the, where this sort of ends up. But I got to say, I, I did not love the, the main, what I took to be the main argument that Millette offered, which was a claim that the issue actually really wasn't decided at all in that original opinion. Um, and the way she gets there is I read it. She says that in, in Kiemba, all that was going on was an attempt to figure out what remedies might be available to a habeas court. 
And all this talk about whether the due process clause more generally applies, um, oh, the court never said anything about that. It just said that there's there's ne- this remedy of entry into the United States, that was not available. Does she say the court never said anything, or does she say that the court's analysis has to be understood as only reaching the narrower question? I think she is trying to say the latter, but by implication, she is saying the former. That is, that is, she she's attempting to distinguish, as, distinguish it as if Randolph hadn't actually weighed in on the broader applicability of the Fifth Amendment due process clause. As opposed I, to suggesting, as I think you could have, that it was dicta, right? That insofar as it wasn't square, as, as uh, insofar as the, the sort of the full applicability of the due process clause wasn't necessarily part of the result. She might argue that. I think, see, I, I guess my fundamental problem is I think it was presented. I mean, the, the detainees in Canada had argued that the due process clause applied and formed an outer boundary on what might otherwise be true about Congress setting rules right. for entry to the United States. I just don't think you can get where she she's trying to get to. And I think it'd have been better if she just met it head on and say, look, Randolph said these broad things. Maybe it's even dicta, although I actually don't think it was. But in any event, provided no analysis on this incredibly important issue. This- are, are you are you influenced at all? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to no, cut no, you off. That's, that's, where, that's all I was going to so, say. So are you influenced by this at all? I mean, we should add the backstory here, which is we've talked before about the two different opinions um, I think one from Judge Tatel and one from Judge Pillard um, respecting denials of initial en banc in Guantanamo cases this year, um, right, where both Tatel and Pillard signaled that they thought the way was clear to revisiting, right, Kiamba One. Do you think that, I mean, presumably the discussion behind the scenes at the court in those cases, right, where there was a petition for en banc, where there was presumably a vote of the judges, um, was on this very point, which is whether, in fact, a majority of the active current judges believe that Kiemba One is law of the circuit on the total applicability of the due process clause. Because I don't think I, I would, given what Tato and Pillard both signaled, I think quite clearly in their separate opinions, yeah. that no one wrote to disagree. Yeah. Right? right. Says to me that you know. We can sort of fight over whether Judge Millett is faithfully reading Randolph's opinion or not, but at least the current D.C. Circuit doesn't think she isn't, or else we would have seen more movement on the initial on bonks. Well, if I'm, I'm not sure I'm 100% tracking you, but from what I'm hearing based on what you just mentioned, the road was wide open for her to more directly engage the substantive merits of this question, rather, or at least even, granted she remands it later, but, yeah. but she should have felt even more free to treat this not as binding and thus potentially criticizable, as opposed to distinguishing it in, in what I found to be an unpersuasive way, suggesting that maybe we've just misunderstood all along. And Kimba really was extremely narrow and didn't didn't address this broader well, Johnson v. Eisenhower right. type concern. I mean, in, so in the abstract, I mean, uh, do you disagree that there is a distinction between the specific due process right that the Uyghurs were attempting to enforce in Kiemba and the due process claim that Kasim is trying to present here? I think if the argument of Randolph is that the Fifth Amendment due process clause doesn't apply, period. I know. There, and, and that is what I think he said. I think it's pretty much exactly what he said. And therefore, you don't get the particular application in Kiemba that the Uyghurs wanted. Um, I don't think you can say that the that overarching question remains right. open and wasn't decided in Kiemba because we're looking at a slightly different application So, 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 Judge, Millett, so Judge Millett had said, yes, Randolph said that, and, and, and you know, the court today no longer believes that that's right. 
something like that, would I think that would have been a more head-on and direct yeah. and forthcoming way to address it. I, I'm not saying that she was in any way dodging it on purpose. No. I, I'm sure she she reads the case the way she reads it, but I don't find that a very... Well, I'm, al- I'm also sure that this has been the subject of significant behind-the-scenes discussion at the court. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I mean, this is why there was some discussion, you know, in my universe of, in my, in my vast left-wing conspiracy universe um, of you know, what the government might do in response to this decision, right? And whether it might try for rehearing on Bonk. Um, and, you know, my reaction is, you know, if if I were Judge Millette or I think the other judge on the panel, it was what, it was her, it was Judge Edwards, who's senior. There was another active judge. I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, oh, no. One sec. It was Judge Pillard. Right. Okay. So if I'm Judges Millette and Pillard, I'm not writing this opinion if I think it's on Bonkable. Right. And so, you know, presumably the only I mean, maybe right there, maybe there are two or three votes right on the en banc court to sort of take issue with the fact. But the irony is that by asking to go en banc and having a majority of the court say, no, we don't see any reason to go en banc, you are validating Right, right. That you, you are. It's, it's like Al Bahani, right? You right, are, you are yeah. effectively on banc denied. Right, you are, you are, you are, you are non on banc on yeah. banking. So they shouldn't go for that. They should let it go back to the remand. It'll get dealt with. It'll get dragged out. Here's, here's the punchline. In, unless to they want a dissent. Unless they want like Judge Katzis yeah. and well, or Judge Rao. Course, and they, there is a proclivity in this Justice Department to want to race to the Supreme Court, and they might think, let's, <laughs> let's short. Someone let's, ought to write an article about it, that. It, let's short circuit it. Let's, let's go on banc. Somebody will dissent, and then we'll try to take. It to SCOTUS. Um, I don't well, think let's SCOTUS. Let's stay. Steve needs more. Ap- Steve needs more stays for the Supreme Court. But wouldn't paper. you agree that this is actually a poor, oh, procedural, terrible? Like, like SCOTUS, I don't think actually would. No, no. Take the brief in opposition writes itself. Right. Yeah, this yeah, is exactly. pre- they didn't hold it. No, exactly. <laughs> That's the so two punchlines. Yeah. One, um, all it is in the end is not actually a decision that Randolph was wrong. It's it's that. It's step one. Oh, Randolph didn't say what everybody thinks he said. Uh, I, I think he said what he said. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, the court doesn't then close the loop and say, and if that is what he said, he was wrong. They say, that's an open question. There's strong hints that the court thinks it was wrong, but it's remanded to the district court to be dealt with. So this whole thing has to bounce down and then we'll bounce back up on the merits of the question. I think that's how it's going to go. But here's the much more important punchline, and I'm really eager to know if you agree with this. I don't think this is going to change anything, even if the court, whichever court, were to say with the last word that, all right, procedural due process applies as well. I think whatever that yields is already baked into the process and substance of the habeas process that's developed over the past 10 years. I think that's right for the most part. I can see two places where it might not be true. One, um, if the administration, if the Trump administration is not actually complying with its own executive order concerning periodic review boards, Right. Um, there's an argument without the due process clause that would that wouldn't give rise to any litigation because a, an executive order does not create rights. Right. But there's an argument that insofar as the executive order creates a process and the government is not following its own process, it is thereby violating the due process clause. Can I friendly amendment that? Yeah. So I, I think w- the way you framed it arguably really is um, – making binding the executive order, which shouldn't be binding. I think the cleaner argument under the due process clause, if it's applicable, would yeah. be to say some kind that of in review. these circumstances, whether there was an executive order or not. Right. There's some right to there's some there's element a, to periodic a, review. The Constitution provides right. And then you, you cite the executive order, and more importantly, the practice going back to 2004. Right. Of some and modicum annual of. or administrative review boards under Bush, which, by the way, was the, the main ARBs. way. ARBs. The ARBs was the main way most people ever got out of Gitmo. True. Um, you cite this as a decade and a half 
half of evidence that in fact, or wait, um, most of the Guantanamo detainees were released by President Bush. Sorry, <gasps> shocking. I know. Um, you got about twelve years of practice showing you that this isn't something that can't be done. Right. Right. Also true. So, and then second, I mean, I do. I think the one place where the due process clause could rear its head, um, and I know we, we, you and I fight about this every time this comes up, but. Um, Length, of, you know, duration of detention challenges, right? I mean, one can believe that the international law, right, recognizes the power to detain until the cessation of hostilities, um, and still believe that the due process clause might impose outer limits on the length of particular forms of non-criminal detention, since the Supreme Court has already said as much in other contexts. Well, in, in Zadvidis, which is close to this issue, yeah. you have the famous footnote where Breyer says, I know, says basically what you were just saying, but then exempts. The possibility, well, no, no. he says, caveats it. Yeah, that's what I, I mean. I mean the same thing. Um, and excludes from his otherwise restrictive due yeah. process based uh, no limbo, no perpetual limbo argument. Says you know national security type scenarios might wait, be wait, different. Wait, 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 wait. National security scenarios might be different with regard to every six months, right? But that's I don't know that you. I, I don't know that Breyer was thereby suggesting that in the national security context, the due process clause has literally nothing to say about the length of detention. His opinion in Zavidas says the due process clause absolutely puts an outer limit if in most cases, right? Right. right. And then he drops a footnote that says we are not opining right. as to, so it's exempting from his analysis. But it's an open question. Yeah, I didn't say, I didn't say he decided. Yeah. I was saying he exempted I, I'm it. I'm just saying, but it would be a question the court might actually have to take seriously. Right, but but the fact that he put that footnote is some sign, it's, you know, from Breyer no less, it's some sign that in fact the answer... I'm not saying that the question wouldn't be raised. Of course, this question would be raised and litigated. And if the court says the Constitution applies beyond the suspension clause, then, of course, we're going to have every possible angle relitigated through the lens of Fifth Amendment due process claims. So buckle up, Matthews v. Eldridge analyses. We're going to go crazy with them. Um, or not even Matthews because, well, anyway, the any, well, so, Middendorf versus Henry, maybe. Uh, yes. So... The, the point is, it, it is uh, possible that argument be made, but as you anticipated, I completely disagree that it, if you're saying it's likely the court might no, no, actually no, no, buy no, into no, that, no, no, I, I don't think it's likely no, at but, all. No, but let, hold on a second. Let's be clear again. In Zadvitis, the question was six months, right? We're now talking about 17 years. And so, you know, I- It had been six months to that point, but the court was very much addressing what about the possibility of perpetual limbo and saying that's not okay right. for run-of-the-mill immigration detention scenarios. But we they they flagged the possibility. I understand. I'm just saying that I think you know if 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 it's four or five years from now when this case gets to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's like, well, you know, does the due process clause have anything to say about whether a non-citizen detained enemy combatant could be held for 22 years? You know, I, I just I'm not as confident as you are that the court's going to clearly say no. I think there's no chance that if the underlying factual predicate that is supposed to be the measure of the law of armed conflict is still satisfied, that the court would say, well, even though the armed conflict is ongoing and these people are detained in relation to the armed conflict, we're going to go ahead and mandate that they be released. I just think there's no chance. Yeah. I think that it's much more likely that what the court would say is these circumstances have unraveled such that it does not appear any longer to be an armed conflict relative to these particular individuals and the legacy organizations to which they were said to belong back then. I, th I think that's a, a much cleaner way out. It doesn't set up any odd sort of, you know, now we have this new rule that trumps the law of armed conflict I, rule. I agree with all that. All I'm saying is that like these are all questions now that courts will have to deal with, whereas they wouldn't have if, the, if there had been some reaffirmance of Kiemba 1. Th that's true. Although then I would say then it's not just the two you raised. It's every possible question. There won't yeah. be anything that doesn't get relitigated. Well, or litigated for the first time since the military commission still haven't decided whether the due process clause applies to those proceedings. Yeah, I'm just talking about the military detention process. I know. We're definitely... But, but 
what everything saying. under the like sun now, seems to have been litigated via the habeas lens. Now we're going to go back and test every one of the things that's been decided about the substantive and procedural aspects of habeas to see whether, okay, that was okay via just suspension. Well, wait a second. Does the analysis change I with procedural Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. I th- now I think you're being uncharitable. So the Obama administration, to its, I think, substantial credit, um, repeatedly argued in the post-Bumedian D.C. Circuit uh, Guantanamo cases, that the analysis would be the same under the due process clause, right? That assuming without deciding that the due process clause applies, right, you would still have preponderance as the appropriate standard of proof. Right. You would still have, you know, Judge Randolph's ridiculous conditional probability analysis holding an aladahi. You would still have the presumption of regularity from Latif. So, you know, I don't see... Um, even if a district court on remand does take up the invitation and hold the due process clause applies, I don't think that allows the district. I don't think that would allow any district court to get out from under the ground rules that the D.C. Circuit's jurisprudence lays out for these cases. Do we need? Well, I'm not sure about that. Do you, are you saying that the D.C. Circuit has already decided that? Let, let's come up with a term to make this easy to talk about: the basket of procedural and evidentiary yeah. rules. Yeah. Um, are you saying that the Law of the circuit, in effect, is that all of that has already been predetermined to be compliant with the with due process. I, I hear you saying, and I, I know you're right, that the Obama administration would argue that, hey, by the way, this is not just habeas and what it requires sort of via the suspension clause. Right. This is also, we think, what due process requires. Um, I certainly agree that's what the government would argue. But don't you think all the detainees would argue that, no, that's wrong, and the courts have never squarely addressed the Fifth Amendment uh, perspective on all those basket of. I, I think if issues. we go back and look, I mean, I remember there's a Kavanaugh opinion in particular. Maybe it was I don't remember which one it was, but there's a there there are a couple of 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 cases where the DC Circuit now have its way to drop footnotes saying you know we're assuming the due process clause applies for the sake yeah. of this analysis. Okay. So, well, so in that case, uh, that would certainly uh, minimize I mean, some of the let, relitigation. Let, I mean, let, let me put some let me put some meat on this bone, right? I mean, so let's just take the standard of proof, right? preponderance of the evidence. So um, there was a whole fight in Albahani and Esmail and a couple of other cases because the Obama administration was arguing for preponderance. The detainees were arguing for clear and convincing. Mm-hmm. And there were D.C. Circuit judges who didn't even think it should be preponderance. Right. They were seeing some evidence. Right. So like Judge Silberman, for example, famously right. criticizes the Obama administration. Right. Why aren't you, why are you, why are you right. being so forgiving? And Silberman in his concurrence in Esmail um, by the way, this I'm just uh, this is I, I I'm no longer I no longer hate everything because my memory is like this is all like all the memories are flooding back to me now. Um, <laughs> so Judge Silverman and his concurrence. I'm surprised opinion, this is making you happier though. Well, I just I remember <laughs> stuff. Um, be, I feel like this is useful. Um, so in his concurring in his concurring opinion in Esmail, which by the way, if you have not read Judge Silverman's concurring opinion in Esmail, you should read it. Um, he goes out of his way to say um, where the Supreme Court in Hamdi said some evidence was insufficient as a burden of proof for a detainee. He said that, of course, was you know considering due process. Mm-hmm. So Silverman was implying yeah. that where due process did not apply, they could hold some evidence, and yet. Right, they still had preponderance. But, but is there any holding of the D.C. Circuit that ever said this? I, I have to go back and look. Yeah. I, re- I recall footnotes where it was basically like, you know, we assume without deciding the due process yeah. clause applies. Yeah, no, and I think that would matter. So I guess to sum up, it's I don't poss- think this will have the same effect yeah. that you do. It's all I'm saying. You don't. You don't think it'll still uncork lots of. I don't think it's going to practice I, trying to revive these issues. I think. I think the practice will happen because yeah. the lawyers will do. You know, whatever color yeah. the lawyers will make. My point is just. I'm not sure the. I'm not sure that there's actually room for a neutral. You know, yeah. precedent precedent compliant district judge 
to find him or herself no longer bound by those precedents. I think the place where the due process clause is likely to actually be meaningful is on those questions, many of which are out there, that the D.C. Circuit hasn't answered. Right. Okay, fair. I think we're mostly on the same page. And so the bottom line is nothing happens as a result of Kasim directly, but it's going to bounce around yep. probably for quite some time. More Guantanamo cases. And, and we agree. Podcast I, fodder. We agree that in the end, if and when the question of, all right, so so what do you get? You've Hey, congratulations, Kasim and others. You've won the Fifth Amendment procedural due process concept. What do you get for that? It's going to turn down the end that it'll it'll raise really interesting questions that could be winners or losers on a few issues, but it's not going to unspool and lead to some wholesale like, wow, we're going to rerun all the habeas cases with a more demanding, substantially more demanding process. I, I think that's unlikely. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we milked that one dry, I think. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a big deal. I oh, mean, I think, totally. I mean, I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's a bit, it's weird to look at an opinion like that and say this is a big deal when the opinion literally holds nothing, right? Right. Um, but, you know, sometimes nothing is important. Uh, right. That's also good episode title. Sometimes, sometimes nothing, nothing is important. important. Okay, capture that. That's good. Um, <laughs> as opposed to, as I, as hate to I hate everything. <laughs> sometimes that's a much see it's a more optimistic one. All right. So uh, speaking of uh, sometimes nothing is important. It's like a double entendre. Uh, <laughs> or triple. Um, mm. Iran. We <laughs> sometimes nothing is important. The president was for kinetic strikes before he was against them, something like that. We could we could be sitting here talking about Lord knows what, but we could be talking about some serious war powers issues involving the separation of powers, picking up the theme that we call the Persian Gulf of Tonkin. The stupid brinksmanship of the president apparently like ordering the strike and then changing his mind or something. Is, is it stupid? You know, I think a lot of people actually have gone out of their way, like Ben Wittes had a had a, a tweet where he was emphasizing that, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. Like I'm I appreciate Whatever happened here, I appreciate the acknowledgement of the relevance of civilian casualties, even even if after that's not a, it, after the fact or not. Aren't we aren't we on the whole glad to see that President Trump is capable of saying those words and <laughs> thinking in those terms, or at least articulating those terms? That, that's a step forward, isn't it? You, you, I'm I'm pushing to see. Can you say anything nice about it? I said something nice about him last week on this podcast. <laughs> you're you're done. He's done for the month. I, I mean, you know, it's uh, one a month, man. All right, fair enough. Um, okay, so we don't have kinetic. Well, I will to say that about. if I were trying to pick a fight with someone on Twitter, Megan Rapino is not who I would start with. Uh, you, you really lost me on that one, but I'm gonna let me just try to guess. Yeah, yeah. The president has decided to say something negative about the awesome U.S. women's. Uh, team no, no, in the she's, midst she's, of no, she started it. Okay, well, uh, I can imagine a million things that might have been the the so so. Rapino said, "If we win the World Cup, I won't I won't go to the White House." That well, that doesn't surprise me. Of that, course not. No. <laughs> but, but but Trump. Well, look, this is an illustration of something I try to emphasize that I think I think I adhere to much more than you do, which is there are effect. things the president does, especially on social media. The reason for which is to goad you, Steve Vladek, <laughs> uh, to goad you into thinking about him and talking about him and stirring him up. Like that's what he wants. No, no, listen, I don't, don't give I him actually, what he wants. Steve. I actually don't care about the fight between him and Rapino, other than just I'll, I'm just gonna you know enjoy watching Rapino mop the floor with him. I see, I, but I think that reflects the thing that he's, from his point of view, he's not getting the floor right, mopped. Right. He's, he's, he's telling right, his story and he's, he's distracting cultivating me from all the other things. Bingo, bingo. Except I'm not distracted because here I am talking on the podcast about, you know, things that matter. All right. Well, speaking of which, there was stuff that happened. I can walk and chew gum at the same time. There was stuff that happened other than the uh, averted kinetic strike, if ever it was to be, on the Iranians. <laughs> the hypothetically averted kinetic right. strike. So what do we have instead? We have cyber bombs. 
I hate using phrases like that, so I'm just kidding, obviously. Um, we have a series of stories, uh, and, and so the sequence goes something like this. First, there was a Yahoo News report uh, indicating that uh, there had been a cyber command operation that did go down that weekend. Um, and the original description made it sound as if it was perhaps specific to the uh, Iranian IRGC uh, component, whatever the unit is, that provides intelligence support related to uh, the movement of civilian and, and other countries' uh, military ships through the Straits of Hormuz, and that this was in some way linked to the, the mine attack the Iranians carried out recently on foreign-flagged freighters or tankers in the Straits of Hormuz or in that area. I think it's the Gulf of Oman, actually. Um, and then hot on the heels of that, you got Washington Post. Uh, Ellen Nakashima was indicating that, well, actually, there's there perhaps two operations. There was an operation that was sort of some kind of cyber attack against that intelligence arm of the IRGC, but then separately an attack to disrupt and dis or perhaps even destroy the functionality of unspecified missile control systems that would be more in the nature of uh, dealing with what was used to attack that Global Hawk U.S. Navy drone that was shot down. So you have sort of those two different dimensions. One thing in cyberspace that relates to the tankers, another that relates to the, uh, the shoot down of the U.S. drone and the risk to other U.S. and allied aircraft in the area. Um, since then, there's been some more reporting. It all gets pretty complicated. But let's just leave it there so as not to go too far down the well and just ponder the fact that the the growing capability that DOD possesses in the form of Cyber Command, its growing ability to actually carry out uh, operations for effect as opposed to simply purely in-network defensive operations or, or operations that are purely responsive to uh, the hostile cyber activities of other nations, but things that are done to have effect on non-cyber systems. Yeah, that's kind of a contradiction in terms, <laughs> I suppose. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Systems that are for the purposes of, say, uh, air defenses and weapons control, as opposed to systems that are themselves the basis for Iranian cyber activities. Um, this is an illustration of how that actually, in, in my opinion, actually gives the president, president uh, a new tool that so far looks to have a, a non-escalatory effect. Um, that is to say, we're, we are sweating a lot less about escalation and the next thing that might happen right now than we would be if what he'd had was the option of doing nothing or dropping a bomb and he opts to drop the bomb, right? So um, I think there have been a lot of people worrying that the growing capabilities that CyberCon prevent, pre presents might actually lead to you know, sort of like the idea that drones tempt presidents into using force more. Oh, now we'll be tempted to use more offensive cyber. Um I actually think it had a bit of an off-ramp quality in this instance. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to see that. Now, there's still the legal questions surrounding this use of cyber means. Since we had just been talking and definitely would have been talking more about separated war powers if an airstrike had occurred, it's fair to ask, well, where's the parallel analysis for the cyber uh, activities? And there, I think we have a, a threshold question about whether there's any need for any serious war powers constitutional analysis, because the non-kinetic, uh, non-boots in the ground, non-boots in the air aspect of the cyber operation, the, the purely digital aspect of it, um, 
pushes it pretty far from things such as the 2011 Obama-Libya intervention, where even in, in a highly kinetic circumstance, the administration took the view that we really weren't at the point where the war powers debate even arises. That was controversial. I think this is very far removed from that. I think it's relatively easy to say that this is on the spectrum of things that the president can authorize without explicit congressional authorizations to use military force uh, in the circumstances we have here, where there has been uh, attacks on neutral sh- or, or foreign flag shipping in the Gulf of Oman, where U.S. global hawks been shot down. I think it's pretty clearly an Article II authority the president has to use this degree of proportionate, non-kinetic, uh, responsive activity. Uh, and then I'll add that 10 U.S. Code Section 394 uh, confirms that DOD, when properly authorized, is authorized to then conduct these sorts of activities. Uh, that's not an AUMF. You've got to have some underlying Article II or AUMF basis, but you have it here, as I just said. Uh, does that sound right to you, Steve, or do you sense any major sort of a, wait, where's Congress on this? I mean, I always think, where's Congress on this? Right. And as a policy and political matter, that's that's right. But no, but but I mean, right. I mean, I, I, I tried to make this point on Twitter last week. I mean, Senator Rubio was on Twitter yelling at everybody for, you know, you know, if you think Congress, you know, if you, you don't know what you're talking about, if you think Congress should be authorizing this. And it's like, well, wait a second. There's a difference between whether Congress has to authorize yeah. it and whether Congress should. Right. And it seems to me that if Congress is here, which it is, and if Congress has the time and the wherewithal, which it does, then, you know, there's no argument for Congress not to play a role unless it just wants to abdicate the policy determination, right? Right. To the executive branch. I think that there's some danger in this particular instance of expecting that in the aftermath of the weekend. So what if on Monday Congress arrived and the if the question was, all right, should we pass an authorization for something? Um, I think it's there's little doubt that if they were to pass an authorization, first of all, the House and Senate would never agree on it. I think, but. Um, well, there's that that little that that really saves us from a lot of mischief right now. Yeah, it probably does. Um, I think that you'd see the Senate pushing for something broad and sweeping that would have the, an AUMF-like effect that you probably do not want. Mm-hmm. Um, and if all it did was simply to say, like, hey, the you know, cyber operations, proportional, limited, that's great. Well, I'm not sure how much that adds. Um, so normally, I, normally I'm more inclined to agree that, yes, we need more congressional debate on stuff. When something is fast-moving, like what happened this weekend, occurs, and when the president's responses don't scale up into the kinetic – um, I'm, I'm not so worried about the, the congressional sidelining. Um, all right. I think we've beaten that one into the ground as well. With a dead uh, stick. Tell me about uh, what's happening with who's in charge at the Pentagon. Who is in charge at the Pentagon? Uh, are you? Uh, I, we're running out of people, right? Um, <laughs> so we are rapidly approaching day 180 of the vacancy in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Mm, um, is that a date with more than optical significance? Well. That's a good question. So the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, Bobby, sets a 210-day outside limit on service of enacting, although there's a caveat that we'll get to in a minute. But, you know, in his concurring opinion in the Southwest General case, um, I guess a couple years ago, you know, Justice Thomas suggested in a footnote that there are probably constitutional limits on how long an officer can serve in an acting capacity. And, you know, not to sort of bring it, bring back Zadvitas and Justice Breyer, but hey, six months sounds like a plausible <laughs> constitutional limit. That's pretty arbitrary, though, to pick it at six months. I, well, so would be, you know, 246 days, so four would, hours, and 17 so would, minutes. So would every single possible day. But that doesn't make it a judicially manageable standard. Well, that's, that's a trick, right? I, I mean, listen, I, the, the, to say that it would be arbitrary to pick 
right? A finite moment, a finite amount of time is not to say that it's arbitrary to have a limit, right? I mean, that is, and so, you know. So if Congress had actually, if with foresight, a prior Congress had yeah. created, um, well, you're saying the 210-day limit. That sounds like they picked the limit. Yeah. That ought to be enforceable. So, so I, I mean, But I do, there's right. a caveat. The, the caveat is unless someone's nominated to the post before the 200 days, 210 days are up, in which case the person who's currently the acting can hold the can continue to be acting for so long as that nomination is pending. So am I understanding this right? That there is, in fact, a predetermined statutory limit. That now, now, the executive branch may try to claim that it's not bound by this. But we've really got a 210-day total limit. We're at day 180. We're about to be at day 180. So it's one month to go before the constitutional uh, crisis is upon us, or at least the statutory crisis. Except that they've not. Except that uh, they've made noises. I, I, I can't. I still can't tell. Right? What the hell? You know, they've done. I mean, with Shanahan, they had said for a while that they, that right, they nominated but they him, but they never it. actually right. sent it. But they can avert this whole situation by by sending nominating. Esper's name. So yeah. so Esper, Mike Mike Esper. Uh-oh. Yes. Um, so Mike Esper had been the Senate confirmed Secretary of the Army. Um, the president announced, as I said, I think in in real time on our show last week, um, that Esper was his pick to be acting secretary once Patrick Shanahan stepped down as deputy secretary, therefore also acting secretary. Um, Bobby, that apparently happened on Friday. Um, but here's the complication. Mark Esper, sorry. Mar- I was going to say, it yeah, was, yeah, yeah, Mark yeah. Esper. Mike didn't sound right. Mike yeah. SB. Was <laughs> That's exactly what I right? was thinking. Um, uh, odd well, SBs. Yeah, appointments and separated powers. Seriously, sure, yeah. Um, Mike SB, the subject of one of the most important executive exactly. privilege decisions that's what by got the it. That's why it was in my head. In Ray Sealed case, parentheses, SB. All right. Um, wow, I'm just, we're, we're, I'm just going all the way into the... Into yeah, wait, the, you lost. Okay, so wait. Circle back to where we are. Esper. So um, what complicates the scenario with Esper is that the president then turned around and said, not only is Esper going to be the acting secretary, but it is my intent to nominate him to be the permanent secretary of the army. And here's where things get complicated because under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, the someone who is nominated to hold the office on a permanent basis cannot also be the acting unless they had already been the, quote, first assistant, unquote, Which they weren't for 90 of case. the 365 yeah. days preceding the vacancy. So, to, so to solve this problem by, by nominating Esper, he actually has to solve it a different way. Well, no, not solve a different way. He has to do a double nomination. He, a, no, a nomination no. I'm sorry. A there nomination and a an placement of a new person. Well, so if he doesn't, as I mean, there is a default, right? I mean, so President Obama promulgated an executive order on succession within the Department of Defense that President Trump, to my knowledge, has not rescinded. And so if the president did nothing else upon the formal submission of Esper's name to the Senate— um, Esper is statutorily ineligible to continue to be the acting secretary, and so it would fall to the secretary of the Navy, um, who I believe is Richard Spencer. Um, it goes to the Navy. It doesn't go to deputy secdef or the next. It well, there is no to, deputy secdef. Well, no, but it doesn't call. Does it call for people to go? Yeah, there's an order. Okay, the, so so, but there's a lot of of positions. Is secta- I'll pull up, I mean, I'll pull up the order. They're no, all, that's what I'm asking. They're about. all what vacant. Is, what is the order? They're all vacant. Um, there's no one here. So wait, I'm pulling up. I this is once again showing my brilliant preparation. I am pulling up the order of succession under Executive Order thirteen three ninety four. Um, Deputy Secretary of Defense is number one. And by the way, to be clear, that's required by statute. So um, now we have an acting deputy. Doesn't count. Okay. Right. It's so be. so Senate confirmed deputy. Um, that's why Shanahan. That's why the president actually didn't have a choice. Yeah. When Mattis. Uh, uh, 
whatever he did, when Mattis resigned slash was fired, um, right, by statute, Shannon, actually, I think there's a good argument that he couldn't use the federal vacancy reform act. Shanahan had to be the acting secretary. Okay. Um, There's no longer a deputy secretary, which means the statute's out. By um, the executive order, um, next up, the secretary of the army, that's Esper. Okay, so it doesn't go to any other Pentagon official goes to the service branch. Right. Uh, next up is Secretary of the Navy. That's Spencer. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Um, next up is Air Force. Then Undersecretary for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics, Undersecretary for Policy, Undersecretary, the Comptroller, Undersecretary for Personnel and Readiness, Undersecretary for Intelligence, then the Deputy Chief Management Officer, then the Principal Deputy Undersecretary for Acquisition. I mean, this goes yeah. on for a while. This is like, you know, right. a decapitation attack in the Pentagon. So within 30 days, they need to nominate Esper, and then Secretary Spencer is going to become the acting sec def while the Esper nomination's pending. That seems like the most likely set of events, right? Um, I think that's right. Um, but the, there's still the question of whether the president will avail himself of the opportunity to name someone other than Spencer as acting secretary pending the confirmation of Esper. Wait, is it? So I thought a moment ago you were saying that if you're not Senate confirmed, if you're just the acting in these various slots in the executive order, yeah. it doesn't count. Wait, what, am I, what, what did I get? Wait, wait, right. But so Spencer is Senate confirmed. Right. Right. But hold on a second. That's just under the executive order. The president right. still can avail himself of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Ah, ah, ah. Right, which allows him to pick any Senate confirmed officer from anywhere in the executive branch or a non-Senate confirmed person who is a GS-15 or higher and has been at DOD for at least 90 can the last just issue another executive order or amend the executive order and oh, he change need to. things up? No, he doesn't need to. But the, my, the executive order does not supersede the FVRA. Yeah, right. Right. So the executive order is what happens by default. That's why if he does nothing else, once he submits Esper's right. name... Right. Oh, so you're saying like he could just decide like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to negate the executive order and go back to the... Right. I'm gonna, I, Rick Perry is going to be acting Secretary of Defense. His name's been mentioned a few times. Or um, who would be even more preposterous? Um, I don't even know. But my, the point is just that like... Steve Vladek. There's going to be yet another... No, I... Well, unless he pulled a Cuccinelli, I could not be the acting Secretary of Defense. Um that would be pretty funny. So I, all this is just to say there's yet another acting Secretary of Defense coming soon. As soon as, soon as Esper's name is formally submitted, we're going to yeah. have yet another, our, our third acting Secretary of Defense during this record-length vacancy. Wow. All right. Well, but everything's well, fine. I, it, I, I do predict that within some certain number of months, they just they finally get focused and confirm Esper and kind of just lock him in there. Um because I, I, I don't nice. see, I, you, you don't hear any rumblings about you know concern about Esper. The Senate I like, I like seems the joke. likely to act. Well, yeah, although, I mean, there, I don't know about rumblings. I mean, there is still there is still concern about um, private contractor influence. I mean, right. So you know, for folks who are concerned about Shanahan's ties to Boeing, my understanding is Esper is a former Raytheon executive. I that yeah. I mean, look, there's always going to be people if you come from the private sector who are going to try to hold that against you in this setting. I think that obviously Shanahan's problems were of a different kind that took well, him down. I, I, I don't so, see I don't see the Senate. Yeah. Uh, in any way hesitating to confirm Esper because of prior employment with Raytheon. Well, I don't think the, I don't no, listen. I don't think he's not going to be confirmed. But I think that you know part of what separate from the the domestic I- a- episode, I think part of what was slowing down Shanahan was some concern about how close he was to Boeing. Interesting. All right. Well, um, the I never thought you know that we'd spend so much time in the show talking about appointments and succession and God vacancies help us. but man I wish we didn't no but but I think we've we've articulated this many times it really matters for our topic because the powers of appointment and removal are central to how the executive branch works well, right. and to how the Senate is supposed to, according to our founding ideals, the Senate is supposed to be a check on that personnel Supposedly. authority. 
But also, I mean, the other thing is acting secretaries, although they may have less power in the interagency process, have just about all of the same authority over their agency. Yeah, they and have so, all the legal power. For right. The most and part. so, and so, you know, there is a lot, especially, especially a huge bureaucracy like DOD. I mean, someone like Esper, you know, for better or for worse, and I hope it's for the better, can really leave their bark. So, you know, these are not trivialities. So uh, I guess on that, I'd say that the, uh, the uncertainty of tenure that, frankly, in the current environment, may actually be a mistaken uncertainty. You may have as much tenure prospect uh, being an acting in this administration as you do being a, a permanent appointee. But nonetheless, it, it should hang a, it cast a shadow over the ability of the acting secretary uh, when working against the grain of the bureaucracy to convince the bureaucracy that the secretary's will is going to outlast the bureaucracies. Um, let's do a quick National Security Division roundup, and let's then do let's uh, touch base with the Supreme Court before we get frivolous. Um, a few cases to highlight out of DOJ that relate to terrorism. Uh, first, United States versus uh, Jones and Shimenti. These are two Illinois men who were convicted by jury in Chicago uh, recently for conspiring to provide material support to the Islamic State and for false statements to the FBI. This is a number. Uh, this is a the latest in a series of cases in which. Uh, step one appears to be uh, pro-ISIS people within the United States revealing their preferences, shall we say, on social media, thus drawing FBI attention. And then the FBI, in some way or fashion, engineers contact between them and either undercover undercover officers or cooperating witnesses, or, or maybe both in this case, I think. Uh, and that then leads, when the persons appear dangerous enough, that then leads eventually to more of a classic sting in which there's a particular plot under discussion. It's all controlled, so there's no real danger. But the willingness of the soon-to-be defendants um, to embrace the idea of killing and hurting people through their own direct actions gets tested. And in this case, uh, what they ultimately did was these guys provided cell phones to the cooperating witnesses, or maybe it was to the undercover officers, cell phones that they thought were going to be used by the Islamic State for bombings, for remote detonated bombings. And so they were arrested at that point. Um, they've now been convicted. United States versus uh, Alo Wemmer. This one, uh, I'm surprised this one hasn't had more sort of unfortunate political play, you might say, because it does involve a Syrian refugee. Uh, Alo Wemmer was a Syrian refugee admitted back in 2016, living in the Pittsburgh area. A similar deal, he gets on the FBI radar. Um, and in the process of interacting with them, he eventually gets in, he embraces a plot to bomb a church or he's planning to bomb a church. He gets arrested before anything bad can happen, of course. Um, but that's a serious deal. This is a person who, at least according, uh, according to the complaint that accompanied the arrest warrant, was in fact uh, planning to attack in Pittsburgh. So not just indirectly making other people more dangerous, but a threat in himself. And since it's a refugee scenario, you'd, you'd think there'd be people uh, emphasizing that for its larger political and policy impact. United States versus Isa. Uh, this is a case we've noted before. This guy was extradited out of Canada. While in Iraq, he had been linked with uh, bombings that included attacks that killed U.S. soldiers. He just He's already pled guilty. Isa just got a 26-year sentence. Um, which is actually pretty interesting. You might even think it might have been heavier than that. But 26 years, and then he'll be removed to Canada. Okay, that's our National Security Division roundup. What about a SCOTUS roundup? This is the final week. <sighs> so, the, you know. The sigh of enthusiasm. You know, we don't really have time or the subject matter expertise to go into detail about everything that's going on in the census case. 
the stuff that is going on in the census case is about as wacky, bizarre, and concerning as any Supreme Court litigation I've seen in my professional career. Now, this one's going to drop tomorrow. Pro- so tomorrow, here's what. So let me say, here's what we know. Right, just make sure uh, I haven't missed the opinion. No, no. So yeah. the Supreme Court has. Um, Five cases that were argued during its current term in which it has still not handed down decisions. Um, and it has announced that tomorrow is the last right. opinion day of the term. Right. This would lead most people to assume that we are getting <laughs> opinions in all five of those cases tomorrow. I am not necessarily sure that's true, right? That That is to say, the court could um, not be lying and not – So for – Would hold I mean, over for re-argument? No, because the problem with the census is that time is of the essence. Yeah, um, no, but I mean, on some of the other cases. So one of them, I mean, so there's this there's this complicated Oklahoma death penalty case about whether half of Oklahoma is actually a tribal reservation and therefore, right? Um, that case I could easily see a 4-4. Four, four. It, it can't be re-argued because Justice Gorsuch would still be recused next yeah, term. So there's no... But I could see a 4-4 four, four affirmed by an equally divided court, and then they wait for that issue to come back up in a case in which Justice Gorsuch is not recused by dint of having been on the Tenth Circuit when the yep. case was there before. Um, so that gets us down to four. Um, there are the two partisan gerrymandering cases. I think we will get decisions in those tomorrow. There's an interesting Fourth Amendment case um, in which we'll get a decision tomorrow. And then there's the census. And, I, you know, I just – I don't know – how the court's going to deal with it. I mean, yesterday, right, at like 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon, the Solicitor General suggested for the first time that the court reach and resolve an, an issue in that case that isn't actually part of the case because there's this parallel case in Maryland about whether there should be a citizenship question on the census where there is an equal protection argument. There isn't one in the New York case. Um, you know, the opinion should be at the printers at this point. Like, I don't know how you're like, okay, we got this. We're handing out opinions tomorrow. Let's figure out what we think about an issue we haven't previously thought about. Um, so I, I just I don't know what the end game is for the court, either in this case specifically or with the census more generally. But I'm not the. If I had to bet money, I don't think it ends tomorrow. Like I think maybe they decide the New York case narrowly in favor of the government, but leave open the possibility that the Maryland case will come back. I, I, it's a real mess, and it's really unusual to have a case that is this much of a procedural mess. You know, literally at the eleventh hour of the term. Yeah, that's going to be some. Difficult parsing tomorrow, very Indeed. possibly, and and, and I'll be doing it live, live, live on air. Um, the the thing I will say about today, so today's today's decisions were therefore relatively tame. But I will just say a couple, you know, one quick note about um, Kaiser versus Wilkie, this administrative law case about the VA. Um, so the court basically limits something called our deference, which is the idea that um, courts should defer when an agency's regulation is ambiguous to the agency's reasonable construction right. of the ambiguity. Right. A lot of listeners will be more familiar with Chevron deference with agency interpretations of, of a statute. statute. This is sort of the meta level of that. Right. Like, this, is, this is Chevron's Chevron. This is Chevron squared. Yeah, um, I like that. So, um, so uh, in, importantly, although how important is a matter of a lot of debate, but yeah. importantly, the court today declined to overrule our, basically five to four with the chief joining the, the lefties, but did agree to narrow it. This is largely the position advocated by the Solicitor General, um, which is fine and, all, and may not be that important in the real world. What struck me, Bobby, was this remarkable footnote in Justice Gorsuch's opinion concurring in the judgment, um, which is really a dissent about whether ours should be overruled. It's footnote 84 if you're scoring at home or even if you're by yourself. Um, Either way. Keith Olman, my favorite. Um, so the and the footnote basically says, I mean, I, I actually I want to read the footnote because I actually I don't want to paraphrase. I actually want to right. literally say what Gorsuch While said. While you're digging that up, I'll just I'll just add that, that you know the majority opinion basically says um, there's under traditional hour analysis. 
Well, actually, it's very interesting what they Under do. Under our Jones. traditional yeah. hour analysis. And by the way, hour, that's A-U-E-R. That's the hour we're talking about. So our analysis. Um, there's You've got a couple of steps that we're familiar with from the Chevron setting, and then the chord articulates. Kagan articulates these further steps to build into it, and the net effect of it all. And there's a good thread on Twitter from Chris Walker yep. explaining this. Uh, the net effect of it all is to kind of provide a roadmap for being – relatively scrutinizing, but still capable of deferring to... So courts... Like rel- tie goes to the agency. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that what it, the, the nub of it to me was, look, first, it's got to really be an ambiguous reg. Yep. Um, there's there's stuff about the ag- agency really has to have brought its expertise to bear. Right. If you can't, the ambiguity actually has to be something that the agency is in a specific position to have some yeah, knowledge like, about. These people are expert. They have experts on this. Their process produced this type of expert it's like, analysis. what's a pollutant, right? We would expect the EPA to have some expertise on what's a pollutant and as opposed they, to— and, and can they show they actually use right. the expertise and that this isn't some litigation position right. or just a policy yep. dictate? Makes all, a lot of sense to me. Yeah, all the, that's, that's where I was driving at. It's like their description, Kagan's description, if you're going to have any deference at all— yeah. This seems like actually some pretty strong, pretty strong arguments for how it ought to unfold. And as Chris points out, this is different from maybe the original hour formulation of look, unless it's clearly erroneous, yeah. we're just going to go with the agency. No. This is like no, no, no. Show us your homework, and then we'll go with you. And, and to be and, and look, I mean, I, I don't think I've been shy about the fact that Justice Kagan is my favorite writer among the current justices. And I think I think this opinion for folks who don't understand administrative law, like whether you're a lawyer or not, and you want like a quick and breezy introduction yeah, this is to a good it, intro. it's a good intro. Um, the thing that stood out to me, though, is not her opinion. It is this quote from footnote 84 of Justice Gorsuch's opinion. To be sure, any, as, I, as I always tell my students, anytime you see a sentence in a judicial opinion that says, to be sure, you know, get that highlighter out. To be sure, our precedent allowing executive agencies to issue legally binding regulations to govern private conduct may raise constitutional questions of its own. Ooh. To which I'm like... Ooh. Is there a citation at the end of that? To Justice Thomas's uh, opinion concurring in the judgment in the Amtrak non-delegation case. Mm. So all I have to say is, listen, and, and, and I should say, and this was not Justice Gorsuch writing for himself, this was Gorsuch writing for himself and Justice Alito and Justice Thomas and Justice Kavanaugh. So this was a four-justice statement that the entire administrative state, the very existence of administrative agencies who exist for the purpose of facilitating government regulation of private activity, might itself be unconstitutional. Might. 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 No, as, yeah. he said may. I, listen, I'm yeah. not. But, but like... That's where we are in 2019. Is, we are asking questions about so, whether the entire administrative state is unconstitutional. Question, is this different from... Gundy? Right. So relate this to non-delegation. So it, one way to look at it is no, it's not. Like one way to look at it is he's just reiterating what he wrote in his dissent that, in Gundy. Cause, cause that, that's what I'm getting at. Like yeah. I, I realize that that's the way written, yeah. obviously, like crazy broad. Um, but, hold on, but, there's a, but there's a way... So the... Restoring the non-delegation doctrine would not ipso facto destroy right. all administrative regulation. Right. Exactly. Right. That's, that's what I'm going at. It would like, require some kind of intelligible print. It, it would require like you know it's a putting meaningful, teeth into the intelligible principle. Right. Rule. Is it possible that what's going on with this footnote 84 in Kaiser is is really just an awkward and overstated and unnecessarily alarming way of kind of gesturing in that same direction? Then why does he cite to Thomas's broader opinion in Amtrak as opposed to his own dissent from like three days ago? In Gundy. I don't know. We're trying to distract from the from the 
self-reference of uh, his I just own. like what I I think there's a lot of signaling going on in not just in the language of these dissenting and concurring opinions the last two weeks, but in who's joining them. So I thought it was a really big deal that the chief joined yep. Gorsuch's dissent in Gundy. I think it's a really big deal that Kavanaugh joined this language in Gorsuch's concurrence here. So you know. The the last I think last year right the the Harvard Supreme Court issue was centered on the the potential demise of the administrative state. Um, I think it might have been two years early. Yeah, because, exactly. There's you know, a lot more material to cite now. And 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 I read all these opinions as saying the reckoning is a coming. So I I think I'll offer a real bold prediction here. In the, in the end, we will not see the elimination of all administrative agencies and all delegations. What we're going <laughs> to just s- the ones we don't like. No, what we'll see is a sharpening of the teeth on non-delegation doctrine, and yeah. this is part of the, a larger signaling of discomfort with the the incredibly broad role of the administrative state. But in practice, what it's going to mean is real non-delegation. But as I think I've said before, what what no one should have any illusion about is that for all of the, I think, you know, fun, breezy rhetoric about how it's bad to have all this power held by bureaucrats and it's anti-democratic and it's destabilizing to popular will, the demise of the non or the narrowing or the cabining, right, of the non-delegation doctrine and of our deference and of Chevron deference is not actually transferring power to the people, transferring power to the courts. And I, for one, you know, don't mind courts having power, right? But we should all understand that that's, that, you know, the judgment that we're substituting for the EPAs or for the FDAs or for the IRSs isn't going to be Congresses. It's going to be the, it's going to be federal judges. Why isn't the better description that it's, it, it may transfer some power and increase the role of the courts because yeah. there's going to be a lot more to fight over, obviously. Yeah. But isn't the first order impact to transfer power back to Congress? I mean, that's certainly the account that's being in a offered world, here. In, yes, in a, in, in, yes, in the world Justice Gorsuch lives in, in which Congress writes perfectly clear statutes where it, where it accounts for every possibility, yes, all these decisions have the effect of, of transferring power back to Congress and indeed of incentivizing Congress to write those kinds of statutes. So I think it's too binary. I think that it's, <laughs> bit, to, to say really? the least, yes. I, it's, a, it's, a little too, it's a little too caricatured. I think that if what we see is, is, a, is real teeth and non-delegation, doctrine, then it's not that Congress, of course, Congress is not going to write perfectly clear statutes, but they're going to say more and own a little bit more, at least, of the hard policy calls. And then the courts will still have this increased amount of litigation. And I just think that's, and I just, so I think it's both. And I just think it's unrealistic that Congress, like, you know, in every, in every example we can think of, right, Congress's mode the last 20, 30, 40 years has been to um, reduce its substantive footprint, not increase it. And so, you know, yes, would we be better off in a world in which Congress actually reversed that and took more responsibility for all of these substantive policy decisions? Certainly, the political moment we live in is not conducive to that. And so, right, the political moment we live in is one where the legislation that's going to get through is going to be compromised. And or at least a result of compromise. I don't mean compromise as a pejorative, right? I mean, will be the result of compromises. And one of the things that happens in compromises is language is often left deliberately ambiguous. Yeah, I think so it's a bug or a feature, depending on your, your viewpoint. I, and, 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 to, and to be frank, I'm not sure it's categorically one or the other. Like, I actually think one of the things I love about administrative law is it's not strictly partisan because we right. all have agencies we like and we all have agencies we don't right. like. Like some of the stuff, some of the themes we're sounding here, actually, if we were talking about AUMFs, right. for example, I think you'd be applauding it. 
I, which is my point is not that I'm categorically averse to the project. My point is that I'm categorically I'm categorically averse to caricaturing the project in ways that actually disguise yeah. what's really going. By the on. way, that just gave me a thought. So let's imagine that we really are heading into say like a ten year uh, generative moment with non delegation doctrine. One of the things that's that's really interesting about the demise of non delegation after after Schechter is that we no longer have any cases that really give us another Curtis Wright, where the question is. Assume a real non-delegation doctrine. Do we turn it off, in effect, when it's a statute that concerns war powers or foreign affairs? Right. Um, well, if non-delegation comes back with teeth, uh, presumably sooner or later we'll have something that looks a little bit like Curtis I mean, Wright Ra- again. I mean, Randy Barnett, among others, has always wondered out loud why no one talks about a non-delegation challenge to the AUMF, since the AUMF literally— Oh, well, Curtis Wright's, right, I think, literally you know, dele- but the, I mean, the AUMF literally delegates to the president the power to decide who we're at war with. Right, and the Supreme Court and Curtis Wright says, look, if it's that kind of— of I know. topical no, no, subject matter, we don't we don't scrutinize for non-delegation and, and, and I think, issues. And I think you know, although I'm loath to think of Curtis Wright as a serious precedent, especially after Zivotofsky too. Um, we mentioned a lot of if the, the table of cases for this podcast today is going to be long, um, <laughs> right? I, I do think that this court, of all the areas where they're going to be inclined to revive the non-delegation doctrine. National security and the war powers is going to be last. Oh, completely agreed. Yes. I, I hope I didn't sound like I was suggesting no, no, no. that we're going to get no, no. a different to result. To the contrary. What I think is we're going to get a, a follow-on. If it goes this way, sooner or later we'll have a right. new reaffirmed where I lose, Where right I lose rule. everything. Where the places where I want exactly. there to be non-delegation, there isn't. Anyway. Exactly so. Steve loses. Steve, <laughs> Steve First, loses. This is, I have a, my, my dear friend from American, uh, Ezra Rosser, who among other things teaches what is unfortunately called Indian law, um, right, which is really Native American law. Um, he says, you know, it, he wa- sometimes he walks into class the first day of the semester and says, the only thing you have to know about Indian law in the Supreme Court is the following rule. The Indian loses. Ah. Period. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, Steve loses. Steve he, uh, loses is also a useful rule. It turns well, this is, out Kavanaugh used to tell the story. Right? Kavanaugh tells the story about how um, the um, he 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 had this line about how he loves he loves reading and, and learning from the scholarship of folks who are writing in this field, and he loves the chance to cite Bobby's work and Marty Lederman's work. And I said, you know, <laughs> what about mine? He said, I said, I said, and me, but C, but C, <laughs> but C, Steve, but C, Steve. So, all right. Awesome. Um, I think we're done. All right. Okay, good. Frivolity. Uh, let's get frivolous. Okay, if you do not want to talk about Westworld, and especially if you do not want to hear spoilers, if you haven't yet watched season two. If you haven't watched season two, come on. Yeah. Get off the schneid. All right. For the rest of you, stick around. Uh, Westworld season two. I finally finished it. Um, okay. Where do we begin, Steve? Where do we begin? Um or do we want to do it asynchronously so as to mimic the season? Oh gosh, I got so confused. So I just I I'm so con- like I, I really do kind of want to before season three. I want someone to stitch together the entire the two seasons. So they did this with the Godfather, right? With the Godfather, they took parts one and two. Oh, they like and they actually it? laced it together chronologically. Which is, it's totally jarring unless yeah. you know them both really well. And then it's super cool. Because it's like, wait, it's the same. It's like Ender's Game versus Ender's Shadow. Like Ender's Shadow oh, tells the same story but from a different character's perspective. And it's like, you know, it's... Yeah, it's, it is. It's like a... a revelatory. Very, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, you, you know, if, if they actually stitch together all of, the, all of the Bernard and Dolores scenes from season one right. in chronological order... Season one might have made more sense, right? And you you would never want to experience it for the first time in that way. It completely removes no, no, the artistry the of it. Time. But yeah, it's kind of fun. All right, so um, favorites, favorite moments, lowest moments. What so, did they do well? What was not done well? 
I thought the Shogun World sort of tangent was just way too long. Okay, it it felt very forced. The entire time, I couldn't stop thinking, well, I guess they just kind of wanted... It it felt like one of these 1970s or 1980s shows where they'd be like, all right, we're going to find a way to have this episode be a Western. You know, Battlestar Galactica had one like that, right? right. Where like, let's have Apollo crash land on a... uh, Western theme world, or a uh, or a Middle Ages theme world, where Starbucks can be trapped in a castle, just because why? I don't know. We need to kind of roll through different genres, um, and I'm not sure it was adding a lot, and especially since they never really did a whole lot with the idea that there were different domains that weren't Westworld as such, right? Yeah. Um, there, you get this exposure to the Raj, the world of the Raj. Um, kind of interesting. It served a purpose with. Uh, with the daughter uh, introducing that character, but the but the samurai bit as as, as part of, as part of Maeve's storyline, I, I don't know. I so is it? I actually thought that was the only part of season two I didn't like, right? Because I thought the rest of it was so cool and fascinating. Like I love when um, they have the father in the fake right apartment, right, where they're trying to figure out how to preserve his brain. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. That that episode. Do yeah. you feel that that was done as an homage to the to the scene, to the episode that opens up season two of Lost? Yeah, of course. Yeah, totally. Is it Desmond? Was his name? I think that's right. Yeah. Um, it everything about that was similar to that scene. You got the music playing on a record player. You got the workout going on. The the hyper clean, interesting sort of old slash new space. I thought that was actually a, a cool little uh, gesture. Yeah, no, totally, and like, and, and also like, it, it also helps the, the plot advancement, like what happened to James Delos, right, and yeah. the, and everything that follows from that. Also, it, you know, trying to figure out where that where that was, like where that facility was. Yeah, yeah. I think right, it's not till the season finale. I think that we learned that it's actually in the forge. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool, and yeah, and they do find, and then they, of course they find like the most recent uh, host unit or hybrid of him in there, like mad as a hatter and cutting things up. Uh, I thought that the uh, the verisimilitude checking that was going on, you can see where it's going when he's like asking these questions, yeah. giving the response, and as soon as he reaches for the paper, you know that paper has the right. list of yep. things yep. on it. Yep. That was pretty cool. Um, I love the episode. I love, I think it's episode two, right, which has the long scenes in the real world where they're introducing Logan, right, to the yeah. idea of Westworld. Yeah, yeah, and he can't believe it. Like, turns out they're all they're, hosts. Turns out they're all hosts. Yeah, like, that was pretty great. Whoa. And also, it ties together with, like, with season one, um, with when Logan and um, the man in black. Right, yeah, yeah. first get to Westworld, yeah. right, and the host who they you meet mean there, young young man in black, young yeah. man in black. Which, by the way, I, I love it. I love that there's that duality of those characters. That's pretty cool. It's more than do. I mean, it's, we're almost at triality. Well, we soon will be, right? Yeah. What about uh, what about Logan as the uh, the embodiment of the AI? Yeah, that's that was creepy. pretty interesting. Creepy. Yeah, yeah, it was good though. So, I like that. Uh, so I, I think mean, that actor got to like to do a little bit nicer part. Um, what do you think of Bengal World? Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'd like to see more I mean, of all those. Is, so this is this is my weird reaction to the season, which is like the the visual distractions I found distracting, right? Like Bengal World and Shogun World. Like I mean, I understood what what I understood the sort of the the reason to show them, but like getting lost in them for like basically episodes at a time versus moving the plot forward. The, the, it seemed like the Shogun World in particular was egregious in that respect. Yep. Um, all right, and then there's the door. Yeah, um, I liked it. I thought they that was a reasonable. There's a limit to how plausible the landing's going to be for all these characters that are migrating to the edge of the park, and how are they going to go on to some more pleasant hereafter? Um, the visual is a little bit much. Like, oh, there it is, and you can see. And 
Yeah, I, but I thought the cinematography was cool. Like when they show you that what's happening is that the actual body, right. that's just going down a cliff. Right. But and it also explains where all the bodies came from in the season opening. Exactly, which is really ties in well. They're all falling down into the this water. This is what I'm saying. If they if, if I HBO, right? Hook a brother up, right? Like sequence everything in order for people who have watched the whole thing like, you know, multiple times. Did uh, did you like watching Memento? The the movie Memento where it's all done. No, I hated it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At the, at the end I wanted to like I wanted to actually like watch it backwards. Um, what about the scene with the Sioux in, in the, the episodes that concentrated more on, on their stories? I thought that was pretty well done. Yep, yep. I thought that was cool. Actually, that was. I felt like that, and, had, and that, more, did, like, that it, had more emotional impact. The way he would fight through to try to find his way back. And, and this deeper spiritual like idea of, of existence, right? I mean, I thought that was actually really, really fascinating. Okay, so um, explain this to me. Um, oh. Going back to... to the, Ka- Ka- wait, Karen does this to me. Like, you know, we'll be in the middle of an episode. Do you understand what's going on right now? I'll be like, no. Oh, I don't mean anything like... Nothing tricky like that. Just dwelling on, like, what's the business plan here? So, right, they're harvesting data mm-hmm. on all the humans that come through the park. And you're, you're told that over the years... What they say, like... Four million yeah. distinct people, though. Wow, that I thought Westworld was kind of expensive. You got four million people Apparently to go through there. Are rich. I guess it's sort of like, well, people that many people are more go through Disney, to say the least. So, so they've got all this. What what did you understand the the plan to be to make use of that? Is it that we're eventually going to be able to offer uh, immortality? And hybrid based. I thought that's I thought that's what was going on. I thought I thought the whole point was that James Delos was the test subject, right, for this incredibly expensive um, effort to use this hyper data. Right, right. To build, to, to extend you, consciousness. But you wouldn't do it for everybody. No, you no, could. just for the, the uber, 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 uber wealthy. But then, why are they gathering all the information? Is, is because it, because the the the, the vol- it's big data, right? The volume of data is itself revealing of sort of broader trends of yeah. understanding and existence. All right, so all right, that all, that's, that's, that's my that's okay. My so they, there was no sort of larger like you know. Zuckerberg is going to have all the data, we're gonna and, we're gonna, and we're just going to have like the best. Because I would think, like, I wish they'd actually said it, because it would have been so of the moment. Yeah. The immortality, yeah, maybe they don't seem able to monetize that because they can't make it work. Uh, but in the meantime, if they've really done what they say they've done on the show, which is like they've actually gotten to your to your ego right. and your real primal drives, and you have that on four million people, I think some targeted advertising <laughs> dollars are available to you at this point. You actually could. Well, so this really is, go to town on that. So this is the question. I mean, this is, I think, what I part of what I hope season three is going to get into, right? So, so they so, get sued. No, no nothing gets sued. No, no, Nobody but, gets sued. No, no. But I mean, it seems to me that 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 one. I mean, there's obviously from the trailer a long plot arc in season three that's going to involve Dolores on the outside. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. No, and, and so we're off in the future. It's sort of a Blade right. Runner, but a little cleaner. A little Dolores fomenting like descent. Right? She's out there in the rebellion with slowly cooking up one one unit at a time. In, Wh- whatever in she's the doing. House. Right. Um, but I wonder if there's also going to be. I wonder if there's also going to be some broader like you know. Um, the Dallas Corporation, what it's doing with this information and sort of, you know, because clearly, I mean, the, the park is dead, right? But so so presumably there's going to be some sort of after, like, do we just shut the whole thing down or do we try to actually make, make use of what we found? It seems like it would fall pretty flat if the park leaves the storyline yeah. and it's just like, all right, so Dolores is out in the world. Turns out the world has, you know, billions and billions of these humans in it. Now she's figuring out just what a what her plan to extinguish the human race would involve, unless it's going to turn into sort of like 24 where Dolores is cooking up bioterrorism where, and, and maybe it is. And that's what the story is going to be. She's like, <laughs> it's like Jack Bauer is going to show up or maybe she's going to make Jack Bauer. And uh, she's going to become it's like, that, a, it's like that. It's like that book I read, the second civil war. 
Oh no! What's oh, that? It's, it's a long story. But okay, was... but so that's one possible direction for season three, where it, but it yeah. just utterly yeah. changes the nature of the okay. show, turns it into twenty four and Homeland. Instead well, this, of... I mean, this to me is the single biggest question about season three, which is, are we done with the park? Yeah. So, and I would think, like, no, they got to find some clever way. You think the park is down, Flashbacks. but it's not. But how do they take it to the next level? I mean, it's Westworld, so they won't just take it to the next level. They'll take it to like the the four hundred seventy fifth next level, and it's only in the season finale that they try to show you how you got from one to four seventy four. Yeah. There's a serious danger here that having followed through the logic of season one and now season two, they've somewhat exhausted the built up logic of the show and they're going to have to scramble for some new compelling idea. Listen, I got to say, I mean, I, I, I've, I, everyone knows how critical I've been of Game of Thrones for sort of, you know, sacri- devo- yeah. slavishly turning everything over to plot. Yeah. I, actually, I actually think one of the things I love about Westworld is that um, some of the sort of meta moves are predictable, but the actual substance of each yeah, move is completely unpredictable. And I think the writers have done an amazing job of keeping people guessing, but both, right? Guessing and interested. Because yeah. oftentimes if a show is too confusing, people just like turn it off. No, right. You know, it's like when things happen, it makes some sense. And let me ask you back to the business model thing or yeah. the whole logic of how you're going to recreate the real Delos and others by observing what he does when he thinks he's unaccountable. Um, I'm pretty sure that if all your data you've got is stuff that someone does when they think they're unaccountable, what you're producing is someone who's going to be very frightening. They don't seem to have any mechanism for collecting the actual behavior day in, day out and the real circumstances yeah. of the world in which society matters and how you behave matters and ethics matters and all the social ethics. cues matter. Yes. That hasn't for, been an important for, part of the first two seasons of, of, of Westworld. My point, <laughs> exactly. All they're doing at best is capturing data on what people do in their worst moments right. where they think things don't matter. But that doesn't tell you anything about the real world. Well, and how people behave when they think things do matter, and it is an iterative game. Unless, unless Dolores is about to get to a point where nothing matters. No, but don't you think their whole idea, like, we can, we can yeah. recreate you, yeah. but we can faithfully model you, is based on a horrifically incomplete data set? Of course it is, and that's yeah. part of the joy of all of this. Yeah, it just makes me think, like, this whole thing, actually, they should have had some claim that, like, it, I guess it can't work, because they could never pull off the the guests don't know they're being monitored right. and they can't square it with by the way we've done comprehensive life logging outside the parks so we right. we know what your good outward facing self is and we're combining it with your real self but that's the only way to get real people i think we're going to have a lot to say about season three no doubt about it so all right well listen we've actually gone on quite longer than we thought um but he is at bobby chesney i'm at steve underscore vladic we are at nsl podcast um i suspect we might both have things to say about whatever happens in the supreme court tomorrow so stay with us on twitter we will try i think to record monday before we both disappear for july 4th is that part of our plan sounds good and otherwise we will you know talk to you soon stay safe out there adios